Alright, so yeah, we are in Romans. If you guys remember, we, we did Romans for, I think, 12 weeks last semester. And then we took a break, and we did a series on relationships, and we talked about um, all different kinds of relationships. And so now we're going to come back to Romans again, uh, and try to make our way through a uh, more, couple more chapters. We're definitely not going to finish it. Uh, there's a lot packed into Romans, as I think I told y'all when we started this series. But uh, does anyone actually remember? Th- this is this is pretty good. Does anyone remember the chapter we left off on? Seven. Eight. No. Six. No. Dang it. Six. Uh, well, no. We actually finished four on five. We just finished five. Yes. So we're starting six. Oh, chapter six tonight. Okay. Um. All right, so here's what's important about tonight. Um, we're actually at like a, um, a turning point in the book of Romans tonight. So up until now, we, we've been talking about what the gospel um, does for us. And now we're about to shift to talk about what does the gospel mean for what we're to do. Okay, so what it does for us and now what we're to do. Okay. So what Paul's argument was, was before you think about what you're supposed to do, right, we figure out what he did. Okay? So it's important to know that who we are in the gospel has been determined already. And because of that, now we are given instructions on how to live out of the gospel message, that saving grace of Jesus that we've been talking about for five chapters tonight as we start chapter six. Okay. So really this whole semester is going to be talking about that six, seven, and eight and nine. We'll all talk about that. How are we now to live out of who we are? The the first five chapters that's described for us. Okay. So, um, we actually, the chapter six that we're starting on tonight starts with a question randomly, but what you need to know is that Paul is asking a question Rhetorically, kind of here, but he's asking a question because he knows up until now he's been putting an argument together for his readers. And as anyone knows, when you're in an argument or putting an argument together, someone's going to have questions for your argument, right? There's going to be a loophole, there's going to be a hole in the dam that's going to let the water through. Like, I just need to ask the right question. And Paul's getting ahead of everyone. And he's going to say, I'm going to go ahead and ask the questions that you're thinking. Okay. So as we get into chapter six, we actually need to read the end of chapter five to understand why he's asking the question he's asking. Okay. So look at chapter five first tonight. And we're going to uh, just read the last section, uh, 18 through 21 here. All right. So Romans 5, 18 through 21 says... Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in. This is important. This is the important part for what we're about to talk about. The law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. 
so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So I want to draw your attention to the two phrases he uses here. He says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And then he doubles down on it and said, as sin reigned in death, grace might reign through righteousness. So the first question in chapter 6 that Paul is addressing is this. Why don't we keep sinning? If grace abounds, why not keep sinning? Right? You may have people have asked you this. You may have thought this yourself. You may think, well, I'm forgiven. There's grace. How important or really um, needed is it for me to worry about sin? Grace covers me. Right? We're forgiven. I'm good. That's the argument that Paul is starting with here. He's saying, what shall we say then? Verse 1 of chapter 6. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he says emphatically, by no means. Okay. <clears throat> what is he saying here? Why doesn't grace encourage more sin? So I want you to think about that question, and we're going to read our section for tonight. We're going to come back to that question. Why doesn't grace encourage more sin? So our section tonight is 6, 1 through 14. So read with me 1 through 14 here in verse six or chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us, who were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, the flesh, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with sin or died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. That's the word of the Lord. And I'm going to guess that just reading that section, all of you can really quickly explain to me what's happening here. Right? This is a pretty easy section. Not too complex. Not true, right? There is a lot going on here. There's a lot of words, there's a lot of phrases, there's a lot of if this, then this, 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 there's a lot of death, there's a lot of sin. 
what's all being talked about here. So my first question that I asked for my, <clears throat> my point one, but before I even say that, I'll say this. My main point for tonight is that we are identified with Christ. If you walk away with anything else tonight, what I want you to know as a believer is that you are identified with Christ. So in order to enforce that, we have to talk about a couple different things. So why doesn't grace encourage more sin? Or why doesn't our uniting to Christ create more sin? Paul really quickly says, by no means. He doesn't give any like, well, maybe I see this. He, t- he says, by no means. This is like, there's no way in Hades that we are ever going to say that that's true. This is a very emphatic statement. And then he says this to double down on it. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So the reality is that if you sit in this room tonight as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, you have died to sin. We're going to talk about that a little bit more, but I want you to hear that, that part of your identification with Christ is that you have died to sin. Sin no longer reigns over you. You've died to sin. How can you still live in it if you died to it? So our sin was buried and left in the tomb that Jesus laid in, and we are now living with a resurrection life. We see this in verses three and four. Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ? Jesus were baptized into his death. Here's all he's saying. The idea of baptism here that he's um, using is he's trying to say this, that you and I We're a part of that death. Literally baptized into, placed identity on, you and I were there. You were part of that death. When Christ was on the cross, when he took the sin of the world onto him and the wrath of God for that sin, your sin today, past, present, future, was actually at the cross. It was present. And as he went into the tomb, in a way, you were present. That death died. That sin died that day in the tomb. And we see this as he's talking about we were buried in in verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This also means this. As we were present at the cross... At the burial, we're also present with him in his resurrection. Here's the truth that as he walked out of that tomb, you gained resurrection life in that moment. Because you are united to him. What he did, you did. That sin that was defeated, you have that. That resurrection life, that newness of life, no longer the old man, but the new person, the new creation, that's you because it's Christ. Here's the reality, and it might be a little trippy, I know, for a second, but just go with me. But you will see why it's important to understand. So in the last chapter, we talked about how Adam brought death through sin. Remember the the representative that we talked about? Who do you want to be your representative? Do you want it to be Adam or do you want it to be Christ? We only have two choices. 
You can either have Adam be your representative, but we know to be in Adam is to have death and sin, and to be in Christ is to have life and righteousness, right? Well, in saying that, we're saying that all mankind was in a way present and accounted for in the action of Adam back in the garden. So in the same way that I'm describing Jesus on the cross, in the tomb, and in resurrection, in the similar way, we too were present when Adam ate the apple. We too are held accountable. We too are held responsible. We have the consequences of that action. For all of us. And that might sound like, well, well, that's not fair. I'm not good with that. Like if I was in the garden, I would have never chosen that. And if you think that, I would encourage you to really consider that. Would you actually have not taken the apple? And when he did, all of us were there Sin came in the world, and all of us are now affected by it and are held accountable for it, okay? But here's the good news. The same is true about Christ and his death and resurrection. In the same way that we weren't physically present at Adam, right? We weren't actually standing there with the apple, like thinking, hey, this is a good idea. We should do this. We just get the consequences of another person's action. And while you might think that's unfair, that unfairness actually gets you righteousness. Because in the same way Christ had an action where you weren't physically present, but you benefit today for. In his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection, we are identified with that. Okay? So Christ took on the sins of the world at the cross. You and your sin were present. And the same is true when Christ resurrected and walked out of that tomb, having defeated sin and death. You were in a way present, like I said, at that event because you're united to Christ. Grace doesn't encourage more sin because those that have truly received grace are no longer the same people. The simple answer to Paul's question, well, why don't we just keep sinning so that grace may abound? It's because those that have been saved by grace no longer want to sin. No longer have the only decision to sin. But they have been given new life. They have been given a a decision, finally, to actually not choose sin, but to choose righteousness. And therefore, they are no longer under the power and chains of sin to be mastered by it, You and I have new desires and attractions opposite of that old person that was left in the tomb. And for those of you in here who are followers of Jesus, you know this. You know what it was like before Jesus. You know what your heart was like before Jesus. You know what you desired. You know what you tolerated. You know what you allowed. And you knew what your heart was after. And after you met Jesus and he saved you, that all changed. Right? All of a sudden, you were interested in the things of Jesus. You were interested in serving. You were interested in loving other people. You were interested in pursuing Jesus, opening your Bible, meeting him in prayer. That's the new creation. 
I've sat across the table from many people that have said, this weird thing is going on. I don't understand. All of a sudden, I have this desire to want to open my Bible and read. I have this desire to want to pray. I have this desire to want to tell other people about Jesus. Like, what is going on? I'm like, you're a new creation. Says God has made you new. He's, he has taken the old and moves it, and he's made you new. It doesn't mean that we don't also struggle with the other desires, right? Everyone in here knows that you're not perfect, that you struggle with sin daily. So I'm going to give you an example of what I uh, maybe is helpful for what happens in this moment. Um, I actually got this example as a helpful illustration. I was listening to Tim Keller on this. And he said, it would be like um, you taking the capital, becoming the governor or the president or whatever, and pushing an old regime out. So now you've won, you're in the capital, you have control, but you constantly deal with something called guerrilla warfare. They are often mounting surges and attacks and thwarting your plans and changing your directions and making it difficult for you to execute and do the things that you want to do as president. That guerrilla warfare idea is sin, that old man. It's not in, it's not in power. It's not in control, but it moves around to make things difficult. It moves around to pull you, to distract you. That's the idea that I'm talking about here. So then we see in verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So again, that old self, that flesh, was crucified with Jesus at the cross. So that the power of sin might be brought to nothing. Now this does not mean that you, once you become a Christian you'll stop sin. Right? We just talked about that's, that's not true. And if you're living with that expectation right now, that's not the expectation of Scripture. The Scripture actually tells us that we will disobey. Should we pursue not to? Absolutely. But it confirms that we will wander, right? We're prone to wander. You know the song. We know this to be true. Sin is still out there to tempt and entice us. We will obey it at times, but here's the important distinction for you in here tonight. You are either, you are no longer enslaved to it. What does that mean? Before you became a believer, you lived enslaved to sin. Some of you tonight live enslaved to sin, possibly. Everything you desire and did was tainted by sin because it was either not in conformity to God's word or it wasn't for his glory. And therefore, you had no other choice but to sin. You didn't even know you were doing it, it was just natural. Again, Tim Keller is helpful here. He says, what a when a non-Christian sins, they are acting in accord with their identity, with who they are. That's who they are. They're slaves to sin. And pause for a moment here and, and call out the judgment of the believer. If you look on the outside world and think, oh, what are you doing? Why? 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 Us? Seriously? 
Why would they not? It's who they are. And it's who you were until you were saved by Jesus. Why wouldn't they sin? But when someone is united to Christ, a follower of Jesus, everything changes because who they are changes. There is a new me. When a Christian sins, they are acting against their identity. Every time we choose to sin, we are acting against the identity we've been given in Jesus. Why would they sin is our question. Therefore, if I sin, it's because I do not realize who I am. I have forgotten what it has been done for me in Jesus. You see, what Romans 6 is telling us is that when you become a Christian, your identity changes. I think Galatians 2.20 is a great example of this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I could say it like this. Andrew has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer Andrew who lives, but Christ who lives in Andrew. Consider that for a second. Andrew's preferences, his taste, his flesh, all die with me. And I'm united to Christ, and I am Christ now who lives in me, okay? Why doesn't grace encourage more sin? Because grace changes who we are and therefore breaks the bonds of sin on us and gives us newness of life. Here's the implication. You say you're a Christian, yet your desire for an acceptance of your sin doesn't bother you. And you find in yourself no desire to move toward Christ in your heart. You may need to examine you being a Christian, if that's true. Again, I'll say, if you are a Christian, yet your desire for an acceptance of your sin doesn't bother you, I would examine your following Jesus. Are you a believer? Have you accepted your sin? Are you tolerating it? So the second thing, point for this section, the benefits of identifying with Christ. Here's the good news of our identifying with Christ. 8, 9, and 10 says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We'll never die again. Death no longer has dominion over us. And once for all, he has died to sin and lives to God. That means we live lives to God, life with him. Never again will you die a spiritual death. Yes, physically we will die. Our bodies will waste away, and at some point in time we will pass. But spiritually speaking, never again will we experience death. Death meaning a separation from the goodness and joy of God. Death has no dominion on you or me. Which means we need not fear death. Death has no dominion over me and you. So if God takes me tomorrow or if he takes me in 40 years, what do I have to fear? I get to go be with him. And then we live lives for God here on this earth. So consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in verse 11. Consider 
respond uh, can only mean one thing as we consider these realities. Uh, Go to verses 12 through 14. We see this response. Let us not sin, therefore, sorry, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. It's a no and a yes. We die to sin, and therefore we are constantly putting it to death in our lives. What does this mean, and how do we do it? Again, I'll go back to the questions. Do you tolerate sin in your life? This passage here is telling us we are no longer that person. So if you are currently tolerating sin in your life, there needs to be a reassessing. If you know you're walking in sin and you're just kind of like, yeah, I'm good with it. It's cool. No problem. No, that's a problem. Because he's saying here, what did he just say? Let not sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Is sin reigning in your body? In your mind? In your actions? And then the second thing, do you make no progress with it? There's no progress in your sin. If anything, there's progress the other direction. I just am increasing in sin. Are you seeing it shrink? Are you seeing it slowly become less and less? I'm not saying you're attaining perfection. Again, hear that. What I am saying is there a struggle against sin. Are you actually trying to kill it? Because here's the reality. Your sin will kill you if you just allow it to reign in your body. It's like the example of getting into, you maybe have heard this before, getting into a cage with a lion and deciding, I'm good. I'm sure the lion's just going to stay over there. Probably won't ever get hungry. I'm just going to sit over in the other corner and just hang out. Sin is that lion. It may not get you now, but at some point it will get hungry enough to devour you. And sin will do that to you. It's a very serious thing. That's why I'm saying, are we tolerating it? Or is it a big deal to us? But our new life in Christ is not just don't do this, but it's also a a positive. It's a yes in our response to giving all we are and have to him. You see, he says here, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. All your members, which means I'm presenting not just my mind, not just my words, my hands, my feet, everything that I have is given to God. By presenting those things to him. What does that entail? Well, Paul says that everything down to your little body parts being used as instruments of righteousness. You see, we don't need to spend our whole Christian life going around to everything thinking, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, just say no, just say no. 
And the whole Christian life is just about don't, 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 don't. Some of you feel like that. It's actually about do. Present. There's so much joy in being used and known by God. Present your body for righteousness. You know that's what you were made for. To worship. To serve. To love. There is joy and fulfillment there. If we do that. You know, doing um, the don't, 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 just say no is kind of like trying to get rid of a tree by only clipping its branches. What about the trunk and the roots? Don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. It's all about behavior management, right? If I do enough good things over the bad things, we have this like compulsive back and forth, back and forth circle that we go through. And some of you are living a Christian life just like that right now. Do enough good things and bad things. Feel better about myself. Don't do that. Don't do that. Be better. Be better. Be better. Instead of hearing that, no, before any of that, let's take the roots and the trunk out because you are trying to behavior manage an old man, a flesh. What God wants you first to realize is that you are no longer that person. That the sin that used to reign in your body no longer reigns. You have power. You are no longer enslaved to sin. That means what you're dealing with right now, the thing that you're like, I can't ever stop doing, is not true. You may be thinking, gosh, I can't figure out how to stop gossiping. Like, I just keep saying things and saying things, and I say I'm going to stop, and I can't stop, and I can't stop, and I can't stop. It's never going to stop. I'm enslaved. You may be thinking, every time I look in the mirror, I want to stop, I want to stop, I want to think good things about myself, but I can't. It won't ever stop. You may be thinking, I just want to look on the computer screen, and I just, I, I can't not click the button, I cannot go there, I can't, I can't. I'm enslaved. Here's the reality. If you're a believer in Jesus, you're not. If you want to believe the lie that I can never get out, I'm telling you tonight, it's a lie. Satan has you by the throat, and I'm telling you, get him out. It's not true. You are no longer enslaved by your sin. Is it a struggle? Will it be easy? No. It is a struggle. But if you have given up because you don't think you can overcome, it's not true. Christ has already overcome. The resurrection life, that thing that rose Jesus from the grave, lives in you. You have power. The problem is that we don't access or live in that power. We don't pray for it. We don't ask for it. We go back to the old person. And what I want you to hear tonight is you are identified with Christ, not with the old person. So here's what that means. When you step into those places where you can't get out, when you feel trapped, 
Remind yourself that this is not me. Did I fall? Yes. Am I back here again? Yes. Run back to Jesus to be reminded about who you are. Don't fall into the shame and guilt that would keep you from the person that wants to remind you about who you are because they have bought you with a price. Jesus has been waiting a long time for some of you to come back to him with that sin that you can't shake. It's not hidden from him. He knows it. And for this whole time, he wants you so desperately to understand that you are no longer enslaved. What he did on the cross freed you. He broke the chain. So stop doing this. There's no handcuffs on you anymore. Remind yourself of the truth. I know it is a struggle and I know it is hard. But daily when we forget, come back to it. Remind yourself of who you are and what Christ has done for you. You are identified with him on the cross. That sin is paid for. In the grave, death was defeated. And in resurrection, he has bought the keys of death and sin. And they no longer have dominion over you. You are identified with Christ. You have new life. So you can summarize this whole section, this whole passage, to think, know, consider, present. Know that you have been united with Christ in his death and resurrection. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive for God. Present your bodies and lives as instruments of righteousness. Here are three questions I'd love for you to write down and consider for the rest of the week. Maybe talk with some of the friends in here about it. Or with someone else. Consider what Jesus has done for you in his suffering, death, and resurrection. When I say consider, I mean literally sit and think on it. Just think about it. What has Christ done for me in his death, burial, and resurrection? And the second question, are there sins you have grown tolerant towards? Are there sins that you have grown tolerant towards? My encouragement to you is repent. Come back to Jesus. He wants to defeat it for you, but you've got to trust him. And the last question, what would it look like to offer your body as an instrument of goodness and righteousness? All you are to him. What would it look like? All right, let's pray.